Well, one of the biggest risks in any organization categorically are people risks. And I think I've read in various different studies, you know, over 60% of the risks in an organization are stemmed from people and behaviors. And a very small portion is market and finance, right? And we don't really think about that. And a lot of times we structure our risk and compliance to focus on the finance and the market, whereas we don't have enough risk managers specialized and focusing on a lot of the people risks. And I'm not talking about fraud. I'm talking about the behavioral cultural risks that you have. That's Jennifer Tam speaking. Jennifer is the former Global Head of Change and Transformation Governance Risks at UBS. And I'm your host of Level Up Your Leadership, Lisa Kristen, where I like to have conversations with exceptional leaders like Jennifer to unpack how they created their success and to discover their recommended tools, tips, and strategies that inspire listeners like you to take your leadership to the next level. Jennifer has spent over 20 years working in finance, IT, and risk management, and she's worked across the financial, insurance, and consulting industries. Prior to her roles at UBS, Jennifer worked as a senior managing risk consultant at Thomson Reuters and managed several strategic and global programs at Zurich Insurance, including serving as the head of the Zurich Way and Growth Office. So when you think about Jennifer and people like Jennifer who are risk experts, what do you think keeps them up at night? If you think it's going to be cyber risk and fraud and money laundering, the markets, regulations, I mean, you're right. But today's episode is actually called the biggest operational risk you're completely overlooking because, well, guess what? There's an operational risk that you're completely overlooking, and this risk plays a huge role in your company's financial success. And that risk factor is your people. After working for years in risk management, Jennifer has seen what can happen when employees aren't provided the environment that they need to perform at their best, whether it's due to stress or burnout issues or working in a constant environment of fear. She believes, and I have to say I I really agree with her on this one, that the companies who focus on their people are the companies who will ultimately perform the best financially. Jennifer gives some great perspectives in this episode on how companies and employees can build high-performance cultures, which simultaneously, of course, mitigates the risks, by the way. And you can create an environment that ensures you and your people are performing at your best. And at the heart of all of this is that your leaders set the culture and the culture sets the performance. So how do you become the type of leader who sets a great culture? Listen into this episode with the former global head of change and transformation governance risks at UBS, Jennifer Tam. Hey everyone, welcome back to Level Up Your Leadership. I'm here today speaking with Jennifer Tam. Welcome, Jennifer. Hello. Hi, everyone. (laughs) I'm so glad to have you here. And I have to say, this is a really great time for you to be here because I think in a day or two, you wouldn't have been able to join me. (laughs) No, exactly. Exactly. So for those of you who are listening and can't see Jennifer, she is really, really, really (laughs) highly pregnant. I mean, what you do date must be like this My, week. Or, it's actually, or it's next week. Next but week. Um, I think I think she's coming a little bit early. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah. So we're very lucky that we get to squeeze you in today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you and I actually met through the podcast, which is an interesting exactly. story is mm-hmm. a friend of a friend. Somehow, I'm, I'm not actually sure, posted on LinkedIn, LinkedIn about it or commented. Yes. And you saw it. 
And you also have a, an interest in podcasting. But we met and mm-hmm. I, I think you're fascinated because you have this really interesting view on risk that I had never really heard before. And so I have a lot of questions for you if okay. you're open and willing to play this hour. Absolutely. <laughs> so I guess my, my first question to start off with is always like, why risk? How, how did you come across risk as being this interesting, fun thing for you? Is it because, you know, <laughs> you're about to take on this huge risk, by the way. I, the baby. Risk <laughs> of having the baby. Well, that risk is gone and done, right? So it's coming no matter what. <laughs> um, so I started in risk essentially almost 20 years ago. So I, I started working for an insurance firm in Southern California and um, insurance is, is risk transfer. And um, I started my career in finance, uh, specialized in technology and ended up working most of my career in transformational programs for the company. And I was asked to come out to the headquarters in Zurich, uh, working for Zurich Financial Services. And as I had progressed my career within insurance, I realized that uh, I really enjoyed the perspective of risk management. And as you mentioned, I have a bit of a different approach or thought around risk management in general. Typically, people think it's like the policeman. I know. I didn't feel like you were wagging your finger at me once. So no, I don't like great. to wag my finger. <laughs> no, I, unfortunately, risk management is, is thought a lot of with a compliance perspective. So compliance is telling you what you can't do, right? What you shouldn't do. And I have always been, I would say, unique in the way that I come from a very entrepreneurial family. And so I just naturally have that ingrained in me and those perspectives um, and a very commercial understanding. And I always see risk management, which it's not widely thought of, unfortunately, as kind of the CEO's best friend. Why? Because ultimately risk management, particularly strategic risk management is what I focus on, is to make sure that your organization is as successful as possible. So whatever that might be, whatever you're trying to achieve, you want to make sure that CEO is able to achieve the objective set, right? Yeah, that's what makes a successful CEO is being able to achieve your goals. So you're saying that actually risk management is the CEO's best friend yes, because that role helps the CEO to perform better. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is a component of risk saying what you can't do. The area of risk I focus on is what you can do. Oh, I like that. Opens up lots of possibilities. Exactly. So as I mentioned, I have a very entrepreneurial perspective of risk management. And I like to make sure that when we set our objectives for the year or three years, five years span, whatever that might be, whatever our strategy looks like, a risk manager can work with the CEO and the executive team to say, okay, this is what we want to achieve. Now I'm going to identify what's going to stop us. And I'm going to make sure nothing stops us. So you're really removing the roadblocks of success. Strategic risk management should really do that. It should remove those roadblocks. Exactly. So I have this analogy for all the American football fans out there. My husband included. He's Swiss, (laughs) but people think he's American because he can name every statistic of any player ever on any team. It's incredible. Oh, wow. Side note. Okay, side note, definitely. (laughs) Um, I have this analogy that if the CEO is the quarterback, right, and the coaches on the sidelines are your board members, that CEO is going to set up the play. And ultimately, it's going to run the offense 
to the end line, right? And get a goal, get a touchdown. Your risk managers are going to be on the field with you and they're going to be your offensive tackles. So they're going to be the guys on the field that are blocking any of the defensive opponents to stop you from reaching the end zone. And that's where you need those strategic risk managers in place to make sure your receiver, you know, your running back can actually make it into the end zone. Yeah, I really love that analogy. And I really like how you're describing that risk management isn't just here's what you can't do or stop doing this or Mm -hmm. don't do this, because that uh, sort of ruins a bit of the fun or the excitement. And you said you have an entrepreneurial background. I, if it's okay to take a detour, I'm curious. You said it runs in the family somewhere. It does. Yes. Um, I have family members that are very successful entrepreneurs. Uh, my grandpa being one of them, my dad's father. He started a very successful business during the Depression. He had a job actually during the Depression. He quit it to start his own company. He had nine children. Talk about risk assessment. (laughs) (laughs) And he did it. He made it a very successful business. He was very lucky. He also started uh, a second business throughout his uh, career, roughly around the 60s and 70s. And he was very cute. When I graduated university, he invited me over to his apartment. And he was living in kind of an assisted living place, right? He was in his mid-90s. And he invited me in. And he offered me a beer, which was really cute because it was, you know, I was 22, so it was legal. But it was just very nice because he was then just kind of making a gesture that now I'm not a child anymore and I can have an adult beverage, right? So he offered me a beer and then he had me he had me sit down at his table and he offered me this little box of chocolates that he said my grandmother used to love. And so it was just very cute how he said this all up. And his speech to me was very short. And he said, Jennifer... You're done with school now. He says, all you need to be successful is your brain and your two hands. And that's it. And he said, so go work for somebody else for a while. And then you can do your own thing. And uh, and I, that always has just stuck with me because any time that I've faced any hardships or difficulties or frustrations, you know, or low points, which everyone has, you know, I always think back to what my grandpa told me, he says, all I need is my head and my two hands, and I've got those. No one's taken those away from me. So I can just keep trudging forward and, you know, keep moving along. That explains a lot about your impressive <laughs> career. Although you haven't yet gone entrepreneurial, but no. maybe by the end of this podcast, we'll have you convinced <laughs> that you should. But you've had such an impressive career across really big insurance banking companies. Mm -hmm. And do you love working at the larger corporations? Is it more fun to look at the strategic risks there? I I wouldn't necessarily say it's more fun, um, but it's very interesting and dynamic. So the larger companies that I've worked for, yeah, I mean, they're these huge Titanic ships. And they provide a lot of opportunities to see various different styles of people and the way that they work. And you can see that there's kind of mini cultures within these large organizations, which add more complexity to what the job entails. You said that you have a interesting definition of risk because you said you see it more as entrepreneurial. You're not just saying no, you're the best friend of the CEO. Lots of times we think of risk as don't get hurt on the job, right. uh, don't have a rogue trader, sure. do a, a trade that goes bad, uh, you know, watching the competitors, what they're doing, mm-hmm. watching the markets. Mm-hmm. What else do you see that's included in risk that maybe not everybody else thinks of? One of the areas I think is around your investment governance. 
So as, as you as a leadership team would decide where you want to place your bets, so to say. All right. So this is our strategy. Now we're going to invest our money in these four areas. When you embark on actually making those transitions and those transformational initiatives, I think there's less focus on what's going to happen after. So there's a lot of focus on what is our strategy. There's a lot of focus on where is our funding going to go to support those strategy. But then you got to remember that after effect. So how is that going to change our organization? And I think people forget that those that receive the change are forgotten and they're not actually included that much in the upfront decision making. And I think that's that's kind of a forgotten place. If you don't include the people who the change affects and who has to long-term implement the change, how can that be successful? Or I guess I should reword it to not put you on the spot, right? <laughs> so if you're not including those people who have to fundamentally deal with the change, accept the change, run with the change, what's the potential risk for them? Or what's the potential risk to the project? Well, it could be any various different aspects or what are the risks. So, and, and that would be heavily dependent upon the organization. So part of that process of identifying your risks plays into the answer to your question. So really, you know, what are the risks, you know, if you're building ships or if you're you're selling lemonade and you're making a change to your company, you've got to understand that first and foremost, it's kind of a black hole if you don't bring in those people that are going to be receiving and dealing with the change afterwards. And they will be able to define then what your risks are going to be. But it's very important to have that risk identification process happen initially. So I can't say carte blanche what each of those risks would be. Spoken like a true risk manager, by the way. (laughs) Uh, Exactly. Um, But I can say you have to have that risk identification process and include those people that will receive the change because that will just make it so much more successful. Because at the end of the day, if you've made your bets and you're investing X amount of dollars into this initiative that hopefully will gain you either more market share, um, will improve the internal performance, whatever that might be. You don't want to lose your benefits in your business case by simple mistakes. And I say they're simple mistakes because you can just very well easily include those people into the initial conversations. Yeah. So it sounds like people play a really important role in the risk part. How do people, and I I guess I'll take that broader and say the people and the organizational culture, Mm -hmm. how do they play a role in risk management or? Well, one of the biggest risks in any organization categorically are people risks. And I think I've read in various different studies, you know, over 60% of the risks in an organization are stemmed from people and behaviors. And a very small portion is market and finance, right? And we don't really think about that. And a lot of times we structure our risk and compliance to focus on the finance and the market, whereas we don't have enough risk managers specialized and focusing on a lot of the people risks. And I'm not talking about fraud because that's covered very well. You know, so a lot of employee fraud and so forth, that's that's always covered in all companies. But I'm talking about the behavioral cultural risks that you have. 
And I'm assuming the reason why is because it's a very, I don't want to say soft topic. It's a very non-structured topic to be able to take a very structured process like risk management and apply those theoretical practices to an area that is just so great. Exactly. So this area is quite intangible. Mm -hmm. So these are these intangible behaviors, the character of the people, how they show up, how they treat each other, how they work together. That causes a lot of risk. And, you know, in leadership development, this is all we do. And of course, whenever I'm going to organizations and I'm talking to them about it. Yeah. By the way, side note, guess what happens when, you know, financials go down or budgets get cut? The first thing that cuts is people development. Mm -hmm. But what I think I'm hearing you say, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that people development is actually a substantial part of the risk of the organization not performing to its peak. Correct. You're not putting words in my mouth. That's exactly so. So not focusing on the people and the development and the leadership is contributing to the heightened risk in an organization's success. And if you look at leaders, um, I always reference Simon Sinek. He he has a great YouTube clip on um, the differentiation between leaders and authoritative figures. And then there's tons of material, YouTube clips, coaches, etc., focusing on leaders and what the behavior should be and so forth. And I think one of the big risks to the organization is not realizing or not paying attention to the fact that there are very few leaders that fit those leadership, quote unquote, behaviors. And most people in managerial positions, whether it's lower management, middle management, senior management, are authoritative figures. And so when you look at risk mitigation in terms of your people and your culture, then you should also acknowledge the fact that you have leaders and then there's authoritative figures and the authoritative figures, those behaviors you need to make sure you're cultivating and you're accepting and you understand that you cannot change someone who's 45 or 50 years old that has certain personality traits. You can't change them. But in terms of risk mitigation, there should be ways where you're working through those people development skills to to address everyone in the organization. So what is the big difference between authority figures, leadership figures? You know, how do how do we know the difference between the two? I don't have a definition for that. If you watch Simon Sinek's YouTube clip, he gives a little bit better description, although he's an experienced professional in these areas. But what I can say, uh, there's a great leadership example that I always love to reference. And it's in this Vietnam movie. It's a big U.S. blockbuster movie. It was a bunch of people in um, kind of in the set in the jungle. And there were these two senior officers observing kind of the, the the guys that, you know, they were taking a break or whatever they were doing, walking through the forest, through the jungle. And they commented on this one young man who was sitting there in, you know, kind of this open space. He was down on one knee and he had all of his team line up. And one by one, he had these big guys walk in front of him and he he analyzed their boots and their socks and their feet. And he did that very carefully. And what the conversation was of the senior officers is that this young man showed such leadership 
because he was looking at every single person on his team and making sure ultimately that every person can perform up to their capabilities, the highest capabilities that they have for achieving their objectives in that jungle at the time. So really it was like, it was just a great perspective on leadership and how that young man was focusing on how every single person can perform up to their highest capability. You said, you know, if you're 45 and you've always done this a certain way, why do you think it is, in your opinion, that it's hard to change if you've sort of always done it in the authoritative way? Not that you're an expert in that either, I know, but I'm just curious on, on your opinion. I think anybody can change at any time in their life. But that's their decision. So authoritative figures perhaps haven't made the internal decision that they want to change to a a true leader. So I I, I would say um, I can't define the difference between authority and leadership, although inherently we probably know what that means, but I'm not going to make a definitive statement on it. I can say that the culture of the organization which many companies are focusing on now. It's the kind of the big buzzword. What is the culture of our company? The culture is shaped, in my opinion, by the leaders and the authority figures, period. For sure it is. And and you can see that if the leaders of the organization, or I don't know if we should call them leaders now or authoritative figures, <laughs> but if the people at the top, you know, you have company values or a company mission or vision, but if their behavior doesn't reflect that, or if they don't hold their employees to those standards, quickly the vision or the mission or the values or the competencies or behaviors that matter. Every company mm-hmm. calls it something different, but it's mm-hmm. all sort of the same. If nobody's actually held accountable to those, then it just becomes a poster on the wall. A lot of times, yes, it does. So when you're talking about holding people accountable, I always say what gets measured gets done. So you have to have a very careful look at what I would call a balanced scorecard. And the balanced scorecard needs to, in my opinion, encompass certain KPIs, so key performance indicators that are benchmarked early on and then monitored throughout your assessment of what you want the culture to be, for example. And by the way, those KPIs don't need to always be correct. Meaning there's so much discussion. I mean, I've worked in big, big companies and worked on balanced scorecards before and getting everybody aligned on what those KPIs should be is very difficult and it's a long process. And so what you end up with might be the KPIs that you've agreed with, but some might be happy with them. Others might not be happy with them. And at the end of the day, they might be not the optimal KPI, right? But it's the best that you have at that moment. Just use it and benchmark it and don't change the variables that go into that KPI and monitor that over time because that in itself will be so beneficial anyway. So if I hear you correctly, then it's on some of these key performance indicators, sometimes it's better done than right. That if you spend too much time working out the exact perfect right, everyone's aligned and agreed upon, the project's over. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I believe in continuous improvement. So you should always refine what your scorecard and what your KPIs should be. However, if you're constantly changing on a regular basis, say within the year or maybe within two years, whatever you're trying to measure, then you're never going to see a real variation between your current status and your benchmark. So you have to stick with it to some degree. 
And when we talk about the culture and the people being so important, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious to make it more personal to you, Jennifer, and ask you, what have you experienced in some of your roles or some of your positions personally with the culture of working in these sort of large financial mm-hmm. institutions, financial insurance? Well, there's been a huge culture difference between Southern California and Zurich, Switzerland. I can assure you that. That I can attest to as well. (laughs) Yeah, there's been very different cultures. I I think also I started work about 20 years ago, and I see a difference in culture and leadership. So back in the day, quote unquote, you know, they talked about leaders, you know, kind of that Jack Welsh thing of taking good to great. You know, it was like, really, someone goes in there and gets a mediocre team and then turns it around and gets these people to be real high performers. And then your your numbers are off the charts, right? Now, I see culturally, and I, I think this is just a lot of the external stress that's coming into organizations, particularly after 2008, where leadership culture has kind of gone into verbatim, I've heard some leaders say, or some authoritative figures, whichever we want to call them. I've heard people say that their talent as a manager is to come in and replace the people. That's their talent. Well, that's, that's their strength is them as a manager, they can come in and they can get rid of certain people and then they bring in new people. So the culture on that, I mean, that was an experience I had. Yes. So how did that make you feel? I won't put words in your mouth then. How does that make you feel as an employee hearing your manager say, if I'm reading between the lines, basically, I'm great at firing anyone who's not performing and replacing you easily and well. What's the impact of that? Well, unfortunately, I think the impact is, is that it creates a culture of fear. So in financial services, you know, there's a lot of layoffs and redundancies and it most of the time has really nothing to do with your performance per se. It's just, you know, there's a lot of cost cutting going on. And unfortunately, that puts external stress also on the managers. Mm-hmm. So we can talk a little bit about the health, you know, status of the managers and so forth. But the culture, as we know, is so defined by our, our management positions and our leadership teams. We have to think about the stresses that they're placed under and how that trickles down, right? So yeah, it creates a, it creates a culture of fear. And if you have a culture of fear, it will be very, very difficult for you to get high performance out of your people. I can only imagine. Will you share when you and I were talking about the smiling story? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that, that's a definite cultural difference here between Southern California and Zurich. That was a shock to me. I had moved here. This happened twice. So I moved here from LA and it was probably within my first four or five months and my project team was pulled in and they had some bad news for all of us, right? So we kind of rumbled about it and so forth. And then it was time for all of us to kind of walk out and leave the the conference room. And I remember I was smiling for some reason. And so someone approached me and she asked, you know, why am I smiling? And it was very accusatory. And she said, what do you know? What, what do you know? What are you keeping from us? Tell me, you got to tell me. And I was just, I was like, I don't know anything. Actually, <laughs> I just know it's probably the same amount as you do. I'm smiling because I don't know. I mean, it's just my personality. But I remember it, it was such a shock to me because I thought that how could anyone ever be questioned upon smiling? And then an even stranger story, same thing. A few years later, uh, I was walking from my office, actually just to the restroom, and walking down the hallway. And on my way back to my office, 
someone came out of theirs and stopped me and asked me, why am I smiling? And I thought it was so bizarre because I was just in my own head space and I was walking back to my office and I thought, I have no idea why I was smiling. Maybe, I don't know, I was thinking of something cute that my nieces and nephews did or something. I have no idea, but I had a smile on my face and it was the second time I was approached in the same company for smiling. And I thought, how bizarre, you know, it is, do we have to be so straight faced and, and looking like we're stressed and angry to be considered, you know, doing our job or something, you know? So it just culturally, it's just a lot different than what I'd experienced, you know, maybe in, in Southern California, where I think in that region, particularly you have a lot of emphasis on health and wellness and being happy at work and having fun at work. So basically you've been told, (laughs) I don't even know how to paraphrase this, Uh, no fun at work. You're going to be questioned if you smile. Something's off if you smile. From these two particular incidences, it told me maybe I should dial my smile back a little bit. And I questioned it. I did question it. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to stop myself from being happy at work. Because actually, as I you know, now that I've gotten older, even though we try to fit into the culture, at the same time, you still have to be yourself. And I think having a happy, fun and enjoyable environment to work in is only going to make you perform better. Yeah, bringing joy to the workplace, I don't think it would be frowned upon. I wouldn't frown upon it. Well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a smiler too. I think that's partially American. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm I'm curious though because you you've mentioned a few times about stress mm-hmm. and managers and you're saying mm-hmm. like it's such a stressful organization that if you're smiling, either you know something. Right. Or you're sort of called out for being a little bit off culture just because you're just happy and enjoying. What does that say to the stress cultures that we're working in? And not only what does that say about the stress cultures, but what, what can we do about it? Well, I, I think there's a lot of stress in the organization and, and rightly so sometimes. I mean, there is, you know, there's very serious topics that we have to deal with and a lot of them are not pleasant. So it's difficult to be happy in the moment when you're dealing with these very difficult topics. And I don't think you can be happy during those difficult topics. But what I think can get you through working in a stressful, quote unquote, stressful and high demand working environment is what I call is your work family. So I was very lucky to have a a very close work family that I developed in Southern California and my company. And some of them moved to Zurich also. So I had my work family here and I'm still to this day very close to them. And I think what that work family provides is in this environment of uh, external pressures that are placed upon you, these families, work family members can provide some security to you, safety, a feeling of wellness, people you can talk to and trust. So trust is the big thing. And it also brings that joy and that happiness when you can have it in the work environment, right? And I think that's very important because when you work through difficult days 
having people that you really trust and enjoy working with is very important. And it only kind of brings you together. So if you have to work through something that's really difficult, long hours, lots of problems, you know, and you get through it all together, you're going to end up in a better place in terms of your personal relationships at work. And how about for the senior level executives, senior level executives struggle with being able to have a work family because they can't quite admit Mm -hmm. their faults. This is why a lot of them go to coaches now because they have no one to talk to at that level. You can't tell someone below and you can't tell someone above. But how can, in general, senior executives or some of the lower levels manage stress so they have, if they can have a work family or not? What are some other tips? Because I know that you are an incredible athlete. So does that <laughs> play a role? <laughs> that uh, is a very strong, <laughs> that's a strong no. adjective. Well, I, I, if I recall correctly, you were part of the national championship team for women's softball in Switzerland. You yes. have run a few marathons. Yeah. And uh, you've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Yeah. So I, for me, I would call that a stellar athlete. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it's all just based on perspective. Yeah. So, but does how does that play a role in how you manage stress? Well, I think it's a good question. Uh, I have ways that I've found that work for me. And when you talk about your senior leadership and the stresses that they have, I always like to say my analogy of horse races. So we pay an exorbitant amount of money for these thoroughbred racehorses, right? And the racehorses are brought in. We put them all in a stall together. They're malnourished. They're under-exercised, so they don't get very much movement. We place all this external stressors on them, and they, more importantly, have their sleep deprived. So if we're putting our racehorses in this environment with this type of capabilities placed upon them, how well are they going to run, right? Not very well. And they're expected to run very well. So I feel for a lot of these people, I mean, I, you know, in 20 years, I've had two CEOs die. One, unfortunately, tragically uh, committed suicide. The other died shortly after retirement. I've had other CEOs that I know um, upon retirement, they got very ill. Luckily, they're, they're, they're better now, but they had a period of, you know, a year to two years of just recuperating. I know countless senior executives that have some sort of health problem, right? So, you know, I feel for them because they need to succeed. Their personalities are very A-type, go-getters, you know, and then we give them all these obstacles, right? These stressors. So what I suggest is for them to continually focus on themselves. So it's good that they go to coaches, actually. It's great that they do. And I think that's probably the first step to them looking at how they can mitigate the risks associated to their lack of performance, right? So that's the risk, right? So I mean, for me personally, you mentioned some of the sports I do. So yeah, I've always been very sporty and athletic. Although I don't look it. So I, I've never had a, you know, an athlete's body. But that doesn't stop me. And I think for me, it's the fun factor. So the marathons. I am the slowest runner, I think, on the face of this earth. But I still do it because it's healthy and it's good. Um, and it's enjoyable to be around other people that are doing that same sort of thing. You know, and it's a com- and it's an accomplishment when you do it. So you have to prepare for them. You have to train, you know, you have to follow a schedule. And then when you do it, you'd be surprised 
you know, how good you can feel after you've accomplished something like that. And so um, one of the things that I do in my spare time to make sure I balance kind of that physical well-being as well as the mental well-being is I, I do a lot of research, just, just Google, just Google health and wellness things. So I don't practice everything when it comes to health and wellness. Uh, you have to find what's good for you. But just being knowledgeable about health and wellness, I think particularly as a leader, will help you in your own health regime, but also make sure that your people are following different health regimes. And it's 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 piece of knowledge that I think is very important. Yeah, I, I know for sure, since everybody's recently been talking about sugar, and yeah. all of these studies around sugar have been saying it's addictive, like you're addicted to your Oreo cookies, mm-hmm. because I, by the way, am addicted to sugar. But now when I look at sugar, I at least think to myself, this is an addictive behavior. Do I really want to give in? And sometimes I have the willpower to be like, no, I will not let sugar mm-hmm. win. Not always. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I think it's important, like you said, with the knowledge, knowledge is power, with the right. knowledge creates a space for you and your mind to have an extra pause right. and gives you a little bit of an extra incentive to make a conscious choice about what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. You have to make that conscious choice. And so I, I do try to research and read up as much as I can about health and wellness tactics. And you can talk about addiction. So I used to smoke. I love to smoke. I still, to this day, love to smoke. I don't. I haven't smoked in about 10 years. Good Um, for you. That's a big accomplishment. Not easy. But I went one day to the next. So I used to just be kind of a casual smoker at parties and so forth. And then as I moved to Europe, it became easier to smoke during the day, I think. There's more of a smoking culture here. And I realized I was getting up to 10 cigarettes a day, which isn't a ton if you speak to a regular smoker, but it was a lot for me. And with all the wealth of information that you can read up on or listen to about how terrible smoking is for various different aspects of your body, aging, so you don't want to age. So if you don't want wrinkles, don't smoke, period, right? If you don't care about the long-term effects of your lungs, worry about your your anti-aging regime, right? So don't smoke. And so just one day to the next, I said, you know, this is just not good for me in any way, shape, or form. As much as I love to take a cigarette on the balcony after work with a glass of red wine and how relaxing that is, it's just not good. So I just threw away my cigarettes and haven't looked back. And it took me three years, roughly, to stop craving cigarettes. It was that addictive. Three years? Roughly, yeah. Wow. I, yeah, I really had strong, strong cravings. Obviously, they tapered off, but I would probably say I haven't had a craving after three years. And that's incredible. And, I, you know, Jennifer, my apologies. I realized that I didn't ask you the most important question. And I think we maybe have already covered it. But I wanted to ask you what you think is your number one piece of advice for leveling up your leadership. I think we've touched on it a bit. Um, I would say my number one advice is for leadership to level that up is to really understand the people and people relationships. And don't forget that you are one of the people. So also focus on the relationship with yourself, 
not just with others. And that will really put you, I think, ahead of the game. And what I've heard so far is, you know, educating yourself, self-care, making sure you're staying healthy physically, mentally, Mm -hmm. maybe taking on leadership versus authoritative (laughs) roles so that you're showing the relationship and the caring about other people. Mm -hmm. Sounds like great advice. It sounds like great advice. Yes. How how do we do that? How do you do it? magic tips? Um, I don't think there's any magic tips. I think the one thing is when I say, you know, don't forget you're one of those people. So you really have to love yourself. And once you love yourself and take care of yourself that way, it'll be so much easier for you to take care of others. Because if you're really in that leadership position, if you really want to be that person, whoever, Gandhi, you know, Mother Teresa, you know, whoever that person is that you want to be, it's such a human factor that comes into that that will really make um, all the difference. So there's no no silver bullet that will do that for you. It's a continuous process through your life. And I, you know, and when someone says, you know, how how do you become successful? Well, how do you define success? Right. So it's a very continual process of of making sure you're present. And that you are understanding the intricacies of human relationships, particularly now when there's a lot of technology coming into play. So I think we are at the precipice for major change, right? Major change in the workplace. What the market's going to look like, how companies are structured. And so the only thing you can really focus on, I think, to level up that leadership going forward is really, you know, make sure you're at the best game that you possibly can. And by doing that, take care of yourself, take care of your people. And if you need help on how to do that and how to mitigate those people risks, there are specialists out there, you know, whether it be a leadership coach, whether it be a strategic risk manager, um, or even even if you just Google those people that you believe emulate what you should be and find out what works for them and what doesn't and how that applies to you, because not everything's going to work for you. I'm so curious now, Jennifer, do you have a KPI, a key performance indicator for your own personal, <laughs> for how you keep your self-care or how you keep yourself? I've actually coined, so I have an unofficial coined phrase. So it's called my personal ROI. So it's my personal return on investment, and which is just a fraction. So you have your numerator and your denominator. And whereas the ROI is typically um, referenced to your financial ROI, right? I put in different variables in the numerator and denominator that include other factors that are just financial. So how much money am I putting into my day and what am I getting out of it is just one of those variables. But you have other variables that have to do with your health and well-being and your fun, the fun factor. So that's important to me. So I, I have kind of that KPI, that PROI that I like to monitor going forward. Yeah. Will you share how someone, if someone's listening and wants to set their own up, will you share some examples like more specifically about what's in a numerator, what's in the denominator so that someone at home right. could say like, oh, I, I should be tracking my own success. I should be tracking my own personal ROI mm-hmm. and, and they can make that a healthy habit. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I, I shared a little bit with one of my work colleagues. She's been promoted, rightly so. She's excellent. She's an excellent people eater. So she always, she, she talks to me about how much time she spends 
on her one-to-one meetings with her team and performance reviews or anything else that happens. And I said, that's why you were hired for that job. You realize that. So the majority of her work week is on people issues, but that's what makes her so good. And people will follow her through a dark tunnel with fire behind them, you know? They'll, they'll do it. But she she talked to me that she's now been promoted. And now her focus is not just on people, but now it's more on strategic things. So now she actually has to be in her head and think a lot more. And so we're talking about that. And we're talking about the time and how she structures her day. And she's got two children and so forth. And so I told her that she has actually improved her PROI. And then I given her some examples of how she'd done that. And she'd never looked at it that way, kind of packaged. And so it gave her kind of a nice KPI benchmarker for her to to kind of work on and look at. Do you have a spreadsheet or something that we can share? Or can I don't have a spreadsheet. Okay. No, maybe no, you but I will create I, this and I'll, I'll put a download I, on my I've website. Already, yeah, yeah, I'll provide that to you. So I've been working on putting together the PROI actually for the public. Ooh, all right. Very cool. I think people would really benefit from it. Um, I track my stuff. I have an app on my phone uh-huh. and it's just key questions that I ask myself every day. Did I give attention mm-hmm. and love to my children? Did yeah. I give love and attention to my husband? Did right. I uh, do a- absolutely everything I could to wow my clients? Mm-hmm. So I don't want it to just be like, did I serve them? But I want to be that above and beyond. So I have this list of questions and if you're comp- a little bit competitive, I'm not so competitive, but I'm competitive with myself. Mm -hmm. And so I know at the end of the day, like, oh, crap, I'm going to get a low score on this one. So I'll, you know, I'll usually turn over in bed at night and give my husband a kiss and tell him I love him so I can up my score (laughs) a little bit, you know, but it keeps you really focused on the things that matter, the behaviors that matter, the actions that matter, that gives you sort of that ROI. Like, am I measuring it every day? Because that's when I bring it top of mind, hold myself accountable Mm -hmm. to it and notice and put a focus and priority Mm -hmm. on it. Mm -hmm. Okay, Jennifer, I have a bit of a trick question for you. Okay. This is a tough question right. for, for some of my interviewees, but but maybe you have a secret answer here. When did you know that you were successful? I definitely do not have a secret answer. <laughs> That's a very, very difficult question because I don't consider myself having achieved success. Yet. Right? Yet. And but it's, I'm glad you've asked that because I'm the type of person who will always want to achieve more and better, right? Um, But just you asking that question reminds me that it's very important for me and all of us to stop and smell the roses. And what I mean by stopping and smelling the roses is whether you want to say you thank the universe, you, you know, you give gratitude. But in actuality, you know, we've had a great career for the last 20 years and I'm thankful for. Um, I've got a fantastic husband and a baby that's about to be born in a couple days. And so I don't have a definition of what success for me is, right? But to keep that light at the end of the tunnel, if you will, shining is what's very important. And I think just, you know, taking day by day and and continuously improving and looking for ways to make a positive influence on my environment is something that's very important. So yeah, so I, I don't I don't think that I've quote unquote achieved the success. I don't know if I'd ever say I'd achieved success, you know. Jennifer, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you wanted to share? Good question. So I think when we look at leveling up our leadership, 
you know, to kind of come full circle on the people and the health and well-being of yourself and of the people that work for you, you need to be very resilient and understanding that through the course of your process and your, I should say, your journey, you're going to have very low troughs and high troughs. And that's where the resiliency comes in. And there's going to be external stressors also along those ways. So you have to stay, just focus on the end game, have patience, um, and, and keep that positive influencers around you, whatever those might be, to make sure that the health of your status is, is actually really um, giving you that performance enhancement because that's going to give you the edge. It's your, you need to be at your peak performance. And if you're going to be at your peak performance, you need to be in your top health, you need to be in top mental state to really achieve over and above um, the standards. So treat yourself like the thoroughbred horse. You Treat like- yourself as you would a thoroughbred horse that you want to win, right? Exactly. That's amazing advice. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me here today and look forward to speaking to you again soon. Congratulations on your baby. <laughs> Thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks for listening to another episode of Level Up Your Leadership. If you're interested in learning more about today's guests and the topics we've discussed, check out the show notes on www.lisacristin.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go to iTunes to subscribe. While you're there, it'd be great if you could rate and review the show. And if you really like the show, I would appreciate it if you shared the word on social media. As always, thanks again for listening.